TransLink said on Friday that the settlement has been reached, and that is a settlement agreement with the Handy Dart Riders Alliance. And the alliance actually launched a human rights tribunal case with the company back in 2017 over what it called inadequate service. Beth McKellar of the Handy Dart Riders Alliance said she thought it was a win when the tribunal agreed to hear the class action case. She now says she's over the moon because of the settlement, but adds that there is still a lot of work to do. Uh, She referred to this as the tip of the iceberg, saying that we've gone unheard for so many years and just put aside. She says it's like we don't care, like we don't matter, that they don't care about us, she says, but they're now starting to stand up and take note. Uh, McKellar said that the handy dart, the door-to-door service that is a ride service, essential for people living with disabilities, that it was inadequate and it meant that some people who are confined to their homes had no way to get out and to get to appointments and to get out into the community. As part of the settlement, TransLink will produce a report on the service's performance. It will also provide funding for research on customer experiences and create a handy dart users group. So that is uh, the end to that chapter, you could say. And the uh, vote to set up the advisory committee was held on Friday. And again, uh, Beth McKellar with the Handy Dart Riders Alliance says that this is a small step forward and that she's hopeful that there will be a more constructive relationship with TransLink from this point moving forward. And just to give you an idea of the scope of the human rights uh, complaint that was made, uh, the group claimed that people, again, were being denied access to transit because they couldn't use conventional transit without assistance, saying that it uh, hurt their dignity, hurt their self-esteem, put their safety at risk, and left them isolated. And the suit named a whole lot of people. TransLink, it uh, named the former contractor of Handy Dart, the former minister responsible for TransLink, former transportation minister Todd Stone, and uh, the list goes on. So we are going to bring in now the producer of this program. Ben Dooley is joining us on the line this morning. Ben, thanks so much for uh, being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, You've been on the program before many times talking about accessibility. Uh, We know that you use a wheelchair to get around. Uh, You've talked about escalators, about elevators, uh, talked about the need to have those uh, things working when it comes to transit. Uh, You wanted to talk a bit more about this ruling and some concerns with HandyDart. First off, what's your reaction that uh, at least the users of HandyDart are saying that this is a small win, it's a step in the right direction? Well, well, obviously it it is a a step in the right direction because TransLink is acknowledging that there are issues that, that need to be resolved. Uh, now it's, it's just a matter of seeing what TransLink is going to do about resolving those issues. Have you, uh, have you used HandyDart? Uh, you know what? I actually refuse to use HandyDart uh, on principle just because I've heard uh, so many horror stories about uh, people's experiences with HandyDart uh, from from friends and and colleagues that you know I I just try to avoid it as as much as I possibly can. Uh, can you share with us some of the horror stories that you've heard? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So a, a guy I used to play hockey with uh, was using handy dirt, and uh, he he booked a ride and he got declined service because the the driver didn't like the type of brakes that he had on his wheelchair. So there, there are two types of brakes. There's brakes that uh, are vertical, and then there are brakes that are 
horizontal. Uh, my my friend had horizontal brakes, which which I have as well, uh, because they don't get in the way when you're getting in and out of the wheelchair. And the driver didn't uh, didn't like that he had horizontal brakes, and uh, so he he refused the uh, service. That I mean, that just that sounds a bit. It sounds unbelievable. Not not to suggest it didn't happen, but uh, I mean, that sounds awful. It, it, it was awful, and and you know, I've I used to play basketball with a guy who uh, would consistently have to leave uh, basketball practice early because the handy dart driver arrived early, and if he didn't leave uh, when the handy dart driver arrived, then then he couldn't he wouldn't have a ride home. And you, we were talking about this as well. And and again, one of the arguments and the reason that this was a human rights tribunal case was this idea of, uh, for many people, this is the only way to get from point A to point B, the only way to get out of their homes. Uh, but it does seem like it's been rather cumbersome. It's not as though somebody can, can get themselves to a bus stop and take conventional transit. Uh, it does seem like there are a lot of obstacles to, to, to even get a handy dart ride. Yeah, I, I uh, was looking at the at the website last night, and uh, so you have to book uh, a ride as much as seven days in advance. And I don't know about you, Jill, but but I don't always know seven days in advance that I'm going to need to take transit somewhere. No, I would I would imagine that a lot of people don't. Um, and you mentioned too that you don't use the service, and that and so I, I'll make the, the the jump there that you are able, and we know that you're able because you've talked about uh, conventional transit in the past. Uh, that you are able to use conventional trans- transit. Um, I've used in the past uh, when my sister was in a wheelchair. Uh, we used to get around using the Delta, the green taxi, which I know also does a bit of backup for for um, Handy Dart as well. Uh, just to say, they they were always fabulous. They were great. But I, I was very aware when using that service that, uh, you know, it's a lot more expensive and not everybody can afford to call up a cab company every time they need to get out and about. Yeah, exactly. In theory, Handy Dart is a fantastic uh, idea because it's, it's, you know, very inexpensive and it, and it provides door-to-door service, uh, which, which in theory, I... I I'd honestly love to use the service, but I've I've just heard uh, you know so many stories of things not going right, and and there are issues with the service that that you know I just I don't feel comfortable using the service. Uh, do you think that might change now with this ruling and with this commitment from TransLink to make it better? I you know I would love to believe uh, that uh, that it, it it will change, but uh, my gut gut feeling says that. That it'll probably uh, be pushed under the rug until somebody complains again. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully it doesn't. I mean, do you feel? I mean, there there seems to have been a bit of a shift in that uh, when the new CEO of Translink came in. Uh, one of the first things he talked about, and I believe it was from hearing you on the radio, uh, was the fact that he didn't realize there were so many issues with the broken escalators and the the elevators breaking down, and what a huge problem that was. And he did seem to offer up a commitment to say, we're going to fix that. We're going to make sure that this isn't an issue so people can get around. Have you noticed any change even in the past couple of years? I, you know what? I, I will have to give uh, Kevin Desmond a lot, of, a lot of credit for the work he's done. You know, I, I have noticed that, uh, you know, when, when elevators do break down, there's a, there's a lot more 
notice and and I know uh, much more in advance uh, than than I used to. And uh, so he he's done a good job, you know, of of uh, at least fixing the elevators because I know he he knows that that's an issue. So it's it's interesting to see uh, what what he'll uh, be able to do with the handy dirt service. Oh, and, and you make an interesting point. And one of, the, one of the issues that you brought up was, you know, having to book your ride several days in advance. And you're right. I, I know very few people who have their lives so planned out that, you know, seven days down the road, oh, I'm going to, I have a, maybe you would know if you have a doctor's appointment, but you certainly wouldn't know I need to go to the grocery store. Or even if you just want to get out of the house and go on an outing, it almost seems like the Handy Dart service needs to, uh, needs to modernize in that there's no reason why it couldn't be done with an app, why it couldn't be done in a more um, online kind of way or a, a better way to be more streamlined. Yeah, exactly. It, it It's for people that have accessibility challenges, but it's very inaccessible to use. Well, I'm glad that uh, we're talking about this today and, and that, uh, that TransLink is dealing with this, that we've seen the settlement. Do you think it will help as well in that, uh, that unless you're in the position uh, like yourself where you, where you depend on transit, um, do you think it will help kind of open up other people's eyes to uh, some of the, the obstacles that are out there? Yeah, I, I, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm on the radio right now uh, talking to you is because I, I think, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't realize, you know, some of the challenges that uh, uh, disabled uh, people encounter. I know I I talk to, you know, pregnant women uh, when when I'm waiting for an elevator and, and they say, you know, I I didn't realize, you know, all the challenges that that someone like you would encounter until I was I was you know pregnant. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, it's. Uh, I'm glad we're having the conversation, and I'm sure uh, that will continue, and we'll see what happens with TransLink, with the working group, and with Handy Dart. Ben, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Jill. Well, taking a look at what's happening in the United States, as you've been hearing on the news, the U.S. Special Counsel's Russia investigation has concluded. Details still very much under wraps. Here's what we know so far. With news that Attorney General William Barr has received Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report, there are renewed calls to make that report public. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Congressman Ted Lieu, a Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, says they're still investigating alleged wrongdoing by the Trump campaign and the president himself. Potential crimes, including obstruction of justice, a witness tampering, abuse of power. Political analyst Dr. Larry Sabato says he believes the attorney general will release what should be made public. And if something is withheld... There can always be uh, someone who, who leaks... Uh, there can always be a whistleblower. President Trump continues to call the investigation a witch hunt. Jackie Quinn, Washington. So let's bring in Jeffrey Myers, a Thompson Rivers University lecturer. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, Jill, thanks for having me on. What happens next as far as people are waiting this weekend to see what information will be released, uh, the summary, uh, if there will be more? Uh, we heard <clears> in that report uh, there could be leaks that, that come from this. What do you anticipate happening next? Well, I mean, I think the first thing that people have to look to is the special counsel regulation, which is basically the rules under which um, Mr. Mueller was appointed a special counsel to investigate. So that regulation has certain obligations around reporting. So first thing that we know is that a special counsel has to <coughs> disclose 
if I'm sorry, the, the uh, attorney general, that is Mr. Barr, has to disclose if either he or any of his predecessors. So that would include Mr. Whitaker, who was interim attorney general for some time. And then Mr. Rosenstein, who was deputy attorney general, but took over the investigation due to potential conflict of interest by former attorney general Sessions, whether they at any time um, opposed any of the steps that the um, Mueller investigation took. That is, did they in any way interfere? They, they really do have to disclose that, and they, they have already disclosed that that did not happen. So that's one piece of information that we do have. Now, um, there's a t- now in terms of the um, weekend right now, what we know is that the Attorney General and his key aides are reviewing the report, and, and they, they have an obligation to, to give some kind of report, or sorry, some kind of um, summary thereof to Congress, but the content of that summary and whether or not that proceeding with uh, Congress is available to the public is that's a different question altogether, right? They they need only provide the basic facts, and um, they can decide whether that is um, Mr. Barr and the Attorney General can can decide whether to release the report um, in sections or only parts of it in the public interest. Now we know that Congress has taken a unanimous, albeit non-binding vote, as 420 to nothing that the report should be released in full um, and that um, there's going to be, I think, some pushback against anything in the report that's withheld, although most legal experts agree that, you know, certain things regarding um, executive privilege or classified information could properly be withheld. But likely what's going to happen is there's not going to be an agreement on what Mr. Barr is giving over to Congress and what's being made publicly available. And Nancy Pelosi, who's, of course, the Senate or the, the House Majority Leader, has said she's not willing to have or agree to confidential um, non-public uh, reporting of Mr. Barr to Congress. So she really wants to see this out in public as well. Again, as I say, 420, the whole of Congress has asked that it be released publicly. So there'll be significant pressure to bear, but I think there'll be pushback on some of the content and likely this will be, there'll be litigation uh, where uh, Congress likely or some of the committee chairs are using it, their subpoena power to get more than what Mr. Barr is willing to reveal to the Congress. And that will likely go all the way up to the Supreme Court and the litigation itself could go on for months or years. Hmm. Uh, we, we know at this point, too, uh, we, we were able to follow along and look at charges and such up uh, while this was ongoing. Uh, we've learned from the, the release or sorry, the completion of the report that there will be mm-hmm. no new charges filed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what could potentially be the fallout, though, if we do get the summary or even the full report? Well, I mean, I think the first thing that's important to understand is eventually, I think eventually in the ripeness of time, I think that the full report is going to be a part of the historical record of this period. And how fast uh, all, everything comes out is another question altogether. I mean, it's really just speculation, but likely, as I say, it will likely not, it will be totally unacceptable and create a complete crisis if the uh, Attorney General refuses to really do anything other than provide sort of a bare minimum outline to Congress, and then none of that works its way out to the public. You know, that will be a problem. There's other in-between spaces where some information is given out, and some isn't. There's also the possibility of subpoenaing witnesses like Mr. Mueller himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the fact that there's no new indictments in it, I, I think that the Trump people are going to use that to declare a PR victory. Say, oh, well, look, there's no more indictments. But I mean, if you really look at this, um, you know, case overall, I mean, there have been, um, you know, there have been so many indictments and there have been so many guilty pleas and there have been so many convictions of key aides to the Trump campaign and, you know, people very, very high up and closely connected to Mr. Trump that the the Mueller investigation, I think, has let the indictments um, 
do the speaking. So that rather than, I mean, one way, if Mr. Um, if Mr. Mueller had wanted to play politics with this report in some way or another, he could have saved up all of the indictments and had them land with a thud on the desk of uh, Mr. Barr now and have the whole report be much more dramatic. But instead, he let the indictments do the talking. So rather than leak, nobody leaked from the Mueller investigation. Mr. Mueller didn't make comments during the course of the investigation. He just did things like um, get guilty pleas and convictions at trial, um, you know, of, of people, very significant people in and around the president. And it's totally unprecedented, you know, that um, that people this close to the president, this involved in his campaign would be connected with, um, you know, all kinds of conspiracy and fraud having to do with taking money and not um, acknowledging it or paying taxes on it from Russia or willingness to take dirt um, from uh, on Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera. So whether, so what we don't, what, what's probably not going to be the case is that the direct connection of these, um, um, these guilty pleas and these um, successful prosecutions, they don't necessarily connect directly to Trump. But what we know is that people around Mr. Trump are, you know, unprecedented in terms of their um, degree of corruption. And that's a political crime. Right? And so impeachment, again, the uh, Department of Justice's guidelines are not all legal scholars agree, but it's widely understood that, the, that Mr. Mueller will abide by them, is that you can't indict a sitting president, right? Right. So what's the solution to the wrongdoing, um, whether it be political or criminal, of an existing president? The solution the Constitution contemplates is impeachment, right? So it's really up to Congress to decide what it wants to do with the information it already has. The idea that there's no new indictments, that Donald Trump Jr. is likely not going to be indicted, that uh, Jared Kushner is likely not going to be indicted. That's, um, you know, you, you can spin that however you want. But the fact that the president's not going to be indicted it means very little. We knew the president wouldn't be indicted from the beginning based on longstanding Justice Department policy. But the people around him who've already been indicted and the people who've already been convicted, more importantly, um, you know, people like Paul Manafort, um, Flynn, a former national security advisor, and, um, um, you know, more recently, Roger Stone, who's going to, is obviously not, his matter isn't complete yet. Um, those are very, very damning. So it's easy. So people shouldn't lose focus on that. And Congress, if it does its job, won't lose focus on that. But the Congress has been clear that they believe, the, the majority in Congress, that is the Democratic majority, have been very clear that it's their belief that unless the um, unless Republicans join in the effort for impeachment as a result of this uh, report, that they feel it will be too politically divisive. And the best thing to do is to proceed to 2020 and allow Mr. Trump to be defeated in an election, hopefully based on a full accounting and a full record, uh, based on what I, I anticipate will be a kind of court fight around having all of these materials brought forward. Gaming it out even further, Jill, if you look at what happens at the Supreme Court, this is going to wend its way up likely all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court of the United States is going to have as the tie-breaking vote uh, Brett Kavanaugh, right, who's, not, who's, who's likely going to be skeptical around release. So, you know, we could game it out any way we want. Um, it's not going to be an easy thing. It's not going to be a slam dunk. Um, you could take the argument, which I do, which is, Probably the Justice Department is wrong in concluding that a sitting president can't be indicted under any circumstances. I think if there's a question of illegality leading to their uh, election, that it goes to the question of rule of law. They should be indictable, but that's likely not the position of the Justice Department. I also think that Congress should move precipitously towards impeachment and already have a sufficient evidentiary record to do so based on the indictments and, in fact, just say the guilty pleas and the convictions. But they've decided to take a more cautious approach 
fearing about public backlash like the one that happened against Republicans for the Clinton and uh, impeachment proceedings in the 90s. Again, I think that's too circumspect, too cautious, and the historical record will not look fondly on that. But again, those are my opinions, and that is not the likely outcome at this stage. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Jeffrey Myers, always good to get your take on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Take care. Well, if you uh, have paid attention to uh, develop, uh, developments in Vancouver and the conversation and debate over affordable housing, you've likely heard the term STIR. That was short-term incentives for rental. That became Rental 100 at Vancouver City Hall. And the idea is that council, in approving developments, would then provide developers with certain rewards, like exempting them from paying some cost levies, uh, giving them other rewards to incentivize building rentals. Uh, There has been criticism of this, though, because the uh, rentals that have been deemed affordable are uh, such uh, things. uh, They're in the range of, say, $1,600 a month for a studio, uh, more than $1,800 a month for a one-bedroom, more than $3,000 a month for a three-bedroom. Some questioning, is that really affordable housing? Are you getting affordable rentals in return for these uh, incentives? Well, one city councillor says maybe we need to put the brakes on this program. And uh, Adrian Cart joins me now on the line, a city of Vancouver councillor. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, what are your concerns with uh, Rental 100? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, we're producing more rental housing than ever in Vancouver, but it's simply not affordable for the uh, people who need the rental housing. And uh, and yet we're giving away um, uh, development cost levies. levies. These are um, the development costs that usually are, um, are levied on every development project and, and the money's used for community amenities like community centers and um, parks and daycare and those kinds of things. So we're losing out that money in exchange for or rental housing, which as you you mentioned the prices, I mean uh, they get the developers get waivers if it uh, meets no more than but sixteen hundred dollars for a studio, and that's on the east side, eighteen hundred for one bedroom, and uh, that is way out of reach for many of the people who need rental housing. Uh, the program itself, Rental 100, though, is a policy that was brought in by the previous council. Uh, but there's nothing that binds the current council or even that council, for that matter. I mean, it's not like you have to approve a development application under this program. So is it not still, I mean, it's still going case by case, isn't it? It is. Um, for Rental 100, they go through a, a process where uh, they, they develop the application and then it goes to public hearing. And uh, so council gets to decide at a public hearing. We hear from the public. We hear from interested parties on one side and the other and uh, and then make our decision. Um, so the, you're right to say that there's nothing that binds us necessarily um, to an outcome. We are supposed to take um, as counselors uh, an open mind on all the issues and make sure that we listen to the public and then deliberate and make a decision at the end of that process. Um, but there's a couple of things that I think are important to understand. When you're sitting in that counselor's chair to make that decision, you have to keep your mind open. You have to listen to the public. And the public are raising concerns. But on the one hand, some public are saying um, that, you know, this is just not affordable housing. It's way beyond my reach um, or the project's too big or too tall or whatever. Um, and others say we need desperately this rental housing. We need to put it in, in place um, soon. It may not be affordable for some now, but it'll get affordable over time. These are the arguments that people bring forward to us. Often they're, they're split 50-50. In my mind, however, I'm thinking several things. 
Number one, um, is this project follow? Has it followed all the rules in the book, or or has it somehow skirted? around some of the, um, the, the demands we make on projects through policies or whatever, bylaws. Um, and if it skirted things, then I think, well, you know, should it go ahead or not? If it hasn't, if it's met every single one of the bylaws and policies in place, what clicks into my mind is also a fairness issue. The developer that's gone through perhaps years of actually developing a project, following all the rules, in the end, the rules are all, all, all be, they've all been followed. Um, but I've disagreed perhaps with the actual rules that are in place, which is the case with the Venture 100 program. I think it should have been changed years ago. I tried under vision. They didn't want that to, to happen. Um, so it's remained the way it is, tied to rents that are um, at market levels and unaffordable. Um, so in my mind, I'm thinking fairness is important, but changing those rules is equally important. And so that's my mission, to change those rules, to develop new, new incentive programs that actually deliver rental housing. Is one of the flaws of this program also uh, that you mentioned some of the rents, and you're right, those numbers were uh, the east side. On the west side, it's even more. It's uh, more than uh, 2000 for a one-bedroom, 2700 for a two-bedroom. Uh, but those yeah. are only the first rentals. Once, if somebody moves out, it, it goes back to they could charge whatever, isn't it? Well, you've, you've hit another nail on the head in terms of a big problem. Uh, we don't have any laws that uh, right now that bind the developer to maintaining a rent at a certain level, no matter who's in the suite. In other words, who, regardless of whether the tenant changes, um, I think we should be looking at keeping the rent at a, uh, at, at a, re- a level where it starts off more reasonably so it's more affordable to more people. And then it should be tied not to the renter, but to the rental unit uh, uh, with allowable increases under the uh, British Columbia laws uh, that, you know, cost of living allowance increases, those kinds of things can go on year by year. If it's extraordinary expenses, a landlord can appeal to um, uh, to the, the province to enable them to raise rents to cover those costs of of renovations or the cost of upgrading suites, etc. But not these extraordinary increases that we're seeing happen. And it's mostly word of mouth that we're hearing it. Um, these extraordinary increases where, um, you know, a landlord can get rid of a tenant, um, maybe to do a minor renovation. We all know this as a renovation and then bring back in new tenants at a much higher rent. Uh, what kind of support do you have? I know uh, Gene Swanson, not a huge fan of the program either. Uh, what kind of support do you anticipate getting uh, from your fellow councillors? Well, Gene and I are actually working together on uh, a motion that looks at um, freezing the Rental 100 applications. Um, so uh, in my mind, uh, it's a really a good idea when you're thinking of changing a whole program. And that is in the works because I, I put forward a motion not that long ago, last month, that actually passed unanimously to have us take a, a hard look and rechange and rejig the Rental 100 programs, any other incentive programs and in order to achieve more affordability. Um, working, yeah, so to achieve more affordability. So, so we know that that's in the works. Um, uh, but meanwhile, uh, you know, if people are applying, developers are applying under the current rules and we're not happy with them, that creates a real dilemma and a real concern. So I'm saying don't allow new applications to come forward during this period where we are changing the rules. I think that just makes sense. I, and I don't know, I mean, I, 
I don't know if, if everyone else on council is yet on board for that, but um, I've seen how concerned councillors are uh, in terms of wanting to approve rental housing, um, but feeling like the rentals are not affordable and therefore we need to change things. Um, yet the developers follow the rules. I mean, this is, it's, it, it really is a dilemma that we face. So changing those rules fast is important. Not bringing more projects on board uh, that are in that sort of gray zone that, that, that all these projects are in now is, I think, important too. All right. So we will leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Councillor Carr, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and have a great day. Well, we talk often on this program, on many programs on this station, about mental health, uh, the Mental Health Act and various stories that go with that. But we're focusing this morning on the Mental Health Act and legal representation. And the Canadian Bar Association is pushing government to go even further than steps that have already been taken to help strengthen the Mental Health Act. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is uh, Bill Veenstra, who is a past president of the BC branch of the Canadian Bar Association. Bill, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, What are some of the issues when it comes to people who have been uh, involuntarily detained and when it comes to having legal representation? Well, the the basic problem we've got right now is that there's no one actually actively in the institutions who is ensuring that the people have independent um, access to advice and, and information on their, on their circumstances, why they were detained, and whether they have a, a right or, or should be thinking about challenging them right now. Right now, the system is based on uh, a form being completed by one of the staff saying, well, I've advised this person that they have rights under the charter and, and, and not much more. And, and the recent report by the Ombudsman suggested that in many cases, those forms weren't even being completed. So the person is involuntarily admitted, kept there for whatever period of time, and isn't given effective access to uh, information on their rights and the ability to exercise them. Uh, some changes have been made uh, already. Uh, do you see, are we going in the right direction as far as addressing this? I, I think so. I mean, the Ombudsman issued a report uh, earlier this month, which basically set out a, a study of uh, systemically how the facilities have been dealing with these points. Um, so I, I think what's happened so far is that a lot of the facilities are looking at this and saying, oh my gosh, we're, uh, we need to make sure we're, we're actually making sure these people do have uh, the right forms filled out. And the government is also uh, looking into the recommendation the Ombudsman made about having an independent rights service where you know, there are advocates who are notified when someone is involuntarily detained and, and are able to go and talk to that person and make sure that, uh, um, that they know what their rights are. I mean, in a lot of cases, the reason they're being involuntarily detained is because they, they either um, they don't see their own need for help or they don't accept their own need for help, and, and sometimes it is justified. Uh, but there needs to be in a free and democratic society where we have the right to be free um, a way to um, challenge inappropriate cases whether the detention was proper. And you raise an interesting point there as well. And we talk about, you know, free and democratic society. And we tend to take for granted, I think, that we live in that without thinking that there are people who, for various reasons, are being detained and having that freedom taken away. Yeah, so it, it is a balancing uh, balancing of rights because there are circumstances where someone does need to be protected for their own good. 
um, and and to be assessed and treated. Um, so so you need to be able to have that occur, but you need to remember at the same time that uh, you know the state normally in in our society can't just uh, involuntarily detain someone, whether it's for as part of a criminal investigation, uh, which we're we're used to hearing about, and uh, our courts are pretty effective at dealing with, um, or or in the case of a person who's being detained for their own good under the Mental Health Act. And even looking at the the Ombudsman's report, uh, the numbers I found uh, interesting as well, saying that in BC, uh, about 15,000 mentally ill people uh, were involuntarily detained uh, at the various uh, facilities in 2016-2017, and that that number has grown by about 70% in the last decade. So that's not a, it's not a small group. No, and in fact, it used to be that there were more voluntary detentions and voluntary admissions to treatment procedures than there were involuntary. And and the voluntary admissions have remained pretty steady, uh, but they're now surpassed by the involuntary detentions. Is it also an issue of funding, that if somebody is involuntarily detained, uh, they're being held in one of these facilities, is it access to funding to get legal help? That, 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 is, that is a factor. So there's an organization called the Community Legal Assistance Society that's funded by the government and by the Legal Services Society to provide assistance, uh, legal representation to, to people. Uh, but you need, you need to get there as well. And I think what the Ombudsman reports identify is, is that the, um, you know, people need to actually have someone who's knowledgeable, who's independent, and isn't just one of the, uh, the staff of the facility who can tell them, you know, look, here's what your rights are and, uh, and perhaps have some discussion with them and then connect them with the, uh, with, with the lawyer. So you, so you need both. You need to have funding uh, for, for the lawyer through uh, the Legal Services Society, uh, uh, through class or, or through some other organization, um, but you need to actually connect the person with the lawyer as well and make sure they have the right to, uh, uh, if, they, if they think they need to challenge their detention, um, you know, how to go about it. Uh, so what else do you think could be done in, in the short term to make sure that that happens and that, that's, that's, that is something that is available? Well, what, what the Ombudsman has proposed and what the government has said it will um, seriously look into doing is, is basically creating an independence rights, uh, independent rights ad- advice body. Um, so, so they would then be notified of every involuntary admission uh, to one of the facilities within 24 hours. Um, they would be able to get access to the person's records and then sit down with them and, and talk about um, whether they, uh, there is an issue that needs to be dealt with and, and, and figure out what the appropriate cases are. So that's, that's, that's the goal. Um, the facilities themselves, as I understand it from the Ombudsman report, are, are making sure they, they're, they're, they're complying with the current form completion procedures uh, more regularly. Um, and uh, and there's a need to get funding then for legal representation um, through presumably through the legal aid program um, to uh, actually provide legal counsel in appropriate cases where people need to challenge their detentions. And I guess we don't know at this point, though, uh, of the the number of people that are involuntarily detained, uh, how many uh, shouldn't be, or uh, how many need that want that legal help immediately uh, because they believe they shouldn't be there. That's that, that's correct. I mean, we, because we don't have the systems in place, uh, we we don't know the numbers. Uh, well, it's a very uh, interesting uh, case. So will you be then monitoring uh, w- what's happening with government or what happens with uh, implementing uh, the uh, the recommendations of the ombudsman? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 a 
it's an area of, of concern to especially those lawyers that practice in the area. Um, and uh, we want to make sure that the government does follow the recommendations of the ombudsman. All right. Well, we will uh, keep tabs on that as well and likely uh, talk to you again about this. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, we are going to talk about apologies, and I'm guessing there are a lot of people listening who have an experience with this. Either you've been the person who has apologized to somebody, things unraveled and got worse from there. Maybe you've been the receiver of an apology, and it was one such as the classic when someone says to you, I'm sorry if what I said made you feel bad. It's not really an apology. Well, what is the best way to apologize? How do you do it in a way that everyone comes away from the scenario feeling a little bit better? Well, a Toronto author and a psychologist who has just written a book called Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership is joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Craig Dowden is on the line with me. Craig, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, This is just one part uh, of what's touched on in the book. But when we talk about apologizing, uh, people, I think, are quick to often throw out an I'm sorry. Uh, But when we break it down, what is the best way to apologize? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, in terms of how to effectively apologize, oftentimes when I ask people, well, how do you feel about somebody who apologizes to you? They'll say, it's great. It's fabulous. I have more respect. I trust them more. And then when I ask them about, well, do you apologize to other people, people often think, oh, well, I'll probably look weak or incompetent. So it's, it's a really interesting kind of juxtaposition. And how we apologize effectively, there were three, there was a really fascinating study done where they looked at and broke down apologies, and there are three core characteristics. Number one is to actually say the magic words, I am sorry or I apologize. We could say or talk or write a 10-page email about how much regret we experience, there's something magical about saying the words, I am sorry. The second component is to actually offer a form of compensation. Now, just to clarify, it doesn't mean how many Starbucks cards am I going to have to buy you to make you forget about this. It's really around asking the other person, what can I do to rebuild this relationship so that we can move forward positively? And then the last one, and I love that you touched on this in the opening, is to actually take responsibility. So a lot of times what we'll do and when people offer apologies is they'll say, well, you know what, I know I said X, but I was under stress at the time. Or I know I yelled at you at this meeting, but you just told me the project was behind. So fundamentally, we're not taking accountability for that apology. And the worst possible way of doing it is, is to say, I'm sorry you took it that way, which basically means to the other person, I'm sorry you're so incompetent, you had no idea what I was talking about, so now I have to actually explain it to you, at a, at a dumb it down for you. Uh, yeah, and I think people often see right through that and realize that's not an apology at all. For sure, absolutely. And then so what ends up happening is, is that, and the evidence is very clear, when we deliver an effective apology, people forgive us more quickly, the level of trust is elevated, our level of respect is elevated. And what happens is, is that if we authentically apologize, then people will say, you're the type of person I want to build a stronger and deeper relationship with, because now in the future, if you do something wrong, and we're all going to make mistakes, you're someone who's going to own it. You're not going to put it back on me. You're not going to throw me under the bus. 
And then what's also really powerful about that is that other people tend to respond in kind. So they will own up to their mistakes as well. So it's a very powerful relationship enhancer. Is there a risk, though, especially, and I'm thinking of, uh, say, a workplace example when one person is in a management or a a higher-up position, uh, if the person is known for constantly apologizing, is there a risk there that you become the person who uh, you do bad things or you cross that line often because you know all you have to do afterwards is apologize? You're raising a really great point, and one of the most effective ways to deliver ineffective apologies is to apologize and then immediately thereafter do the exact same behavior and say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Or if someone is literally saying, I'm sorry, constantly without any awareness and or interest in how to move forward and change that behavior so that you just every single situation is just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So it quickly becomes a meaningless gesture to other people. So I think that's something that's very important to recognize. Uh, And do you find too, are people reluctant to apologize in that it opens up, I mean, it admits that you did something wrong, uh, that that you might be in in a scenario then where where there's a liability or or, or you're perceived as, as being the weaker one? I love that you're bringing this up. So there's this fascinating study uh, where they looked at physicians. So, and one of the primary pieces of advice that they say to physicians is, you know, don't, and it was in the U.S., it was like, don't apologize because you open yourself up to legal, uh, to liability issues. And what the researchers found, in fact, was that when physicians did apologize and own up for their behavior, their patients were less likely to sue and see com- compensatory damages. So I think this is, again, incredibly powerful because what people are looking for is for us to actually take ownership for the behavior, and then we're more forgiving because we're all human and we make mistakes. So what we're looking for is the other person to own up to that. So once again, a really interesting kind of barrier to engaging an effective apology or delivering one. In fact, it has the opposite effect. People are much more forgiving when they do it, and when we hold on and assert that we didn't do anything wrong, then they want to seek action against us because they want things to be right, that pursuit of universal justice. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier, too, one of the uh, the best ways, uh, the things to do, the things not to do, uh, the not justify. What if someone feels, though, that in the scenario, we'll use a scenario that maybe somebody raised their voice at somebody or was very short with somebody, and you're apologizing for doing that, but there were other factors in that uh, maybe your kid was homesick from school, your car just broke down, and, and it was kind of the perfect storm of everything went wrong. Uh, could you not use that to justify in that, I know I yelled at you or I was short with you, but I'm sorry, also, I was dealing with all of this other stuff. Another awesome, fantastic question. And what's really powerful is around word choice. So I'm sorry I yelled at you, but. And there's a lot of work done that as soon as we say the word but, essentially what it does is invalidate what precedes it. So what you can do, and again, it's a, it's, it's a more challenging dynamic is to say, I know I yelled at you and I'm sorry, and I had a sick child at home, and so I'm not justifying the behavior. What I'm attempting to do is let you know. Now, once again, the, the challenge is if you, even if you use and rather than but, there can be the sense from the other person that you aren't taking accountability. So, in fact, the most effective way would be to apologize 
and later come back to that and say, well, I just wanted to revisit what happened the other day. It's because it's something that I recognize within myself, and here's what was going on and personally, and I should have let you know. So once again, it separates the apology in the moment from a revisiting and the explanation and still enables you to acknowledge it. And what's important in that space is that you're still not throwing the responsibility back you're saying, upon reflection, I recognize this about myself, and I wanted you to know in case I'm short again, so please let me know so that I can dial it down. And what, what about, I mean, obviously, I, I think we apologize. We know we've done something wrong. We apologize to somebody to help uh, deal with it and move on. What if you've given somebody what you think is a perfectly good apology, and the response is, I don't accept it? Well, and, and I think, that, so a couple of things. Number one would be, well, what, will, what would you need in order to accept that apology? What's missing? What else can I do? What else would you like to hear? Now, what's important about opening up that up through a question is that you, or may, you may or may not agree with what the person says. They should say, well, pay me $500,000. So what, it's unlocking the conversation and continuing to have the discussion and then also recognizing that at a point we all have the right to be able to say, well, I appreciate where you are. And in fact, I just feel like that's over and above and beyond what I'm prepared to do and close the conversation. Asking the question, though, can be really powerful because there may be a particular word they're looking for you to say. There may be a particular incident or a, or a segment of that exchange that they may want you to acknowledge. So once again, it unlocks a deeper analysis of it so we can really understand where the other person is coming from, and they'll appreciate that we're inquisitive, we're curious about where they were, rather than saying, well, I just apologize, shouldn't that be enough for you? Because that can spark more conflict and someone thinking, well, did, did you really mean what you just said? And what if we're in a scenario where both people involved maybe crossed a line and apologies on both sides are justified? Do you get an upper hand being the one that does it first? First, uh, lovely. And, and it's really the principle of reciprocity. So what's great is, is that, uh, and Marshall Goldsmith, the top-rated execu- executive coach in the world, has called apologizing a, ma- uh, a magic move for leaders and for all of us. And it's because if we lead the conversation first, it's really interesting in the work that I do with executives. Sometimes someone will say, well, Jill started it. And then I'll ask them, well, what would we say if one of our children said that? And then they would say, well, you should, you know, grow up and accept and let's move the conversation forward. So by actually stepping forward and saying, I apologize, I'm sorry for what I did, it maximizes the chances that the other person will appreciate the leadership role that you took, and then they will apologize in kind. Once again, that reciprocation. All right. Well, interesting, interesting points and uh, and, uh, facts and such when it comes to uh, the the correct way to offer an apology. I will have to leave it there. Craig, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. This was really enjoyable. I appreciate uh, the time to uh, chat with you.